Um, some of you are maybe not Christians or you are Christians, but you don't know why every week we open up the Bible and I spend time talking to you about what's in the Bible. Um, and I want to talk to you just a bit before we read our text. Each week we pick a text and I focus on parts of the text. Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God, not the word of man. We know men were used by the Holy Spirit to write it, but Scripture says about itself that nothing in Scripture has ever been written um, by the will of man. And all of you know what the will of man is. I just said, hey, let's have that number again. That was my will. And Jody says, yeah, I'm willing. And so we had a meeting of the will, but the Bible says about itself, that nothing in here is written by the will of man, but holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so this book is not the word of man, but the word of God. And so each week we study this book, and each week we work hard to come under its authority. Now this is completely foreign to the way we live today, because... There is no authority we come under. About the closest that any of us have to coming under authority is when we do our income taxes. Generally, we try to be scrupulous in violating the tax code in such a way that nobody will accuse us of violating the tax code. And that's about as close as we come to submitting to any external authority in our life. Or the manual, the rules, rules of the road. Generally, we try to learn it in such a way that we can repeat back to the examiner the questions that they ask and get our license and then go out and violate every rule that we just wrote down. Like starting with speed limits. I had a reminder of how much all of us defy authority today when I listened to President Obama this last week and the Supreme Court recently came out with a ruling that President Obama didn't like. And so here are all the justices, men and women, sitting in their robes right underneath them. And in the State of the Union address, he makes it clear that he is absolutely opposed to the decision they just came out with. Now, what is the job of the Supreme Court? The job of the Supreme Court is to do what? It is their job to take our supreme authority in the United States of America, which is the Constitution, and to apply it to everyone equally in such a way that the Constitution has authority over all of us. Now, obviously, that means me, but it also means over Congress. It also means over the president. It means themselves. If they say, you know, let's go off the tracks with the locomotive and see what the meadow looks like. The Constitution brings the justices back to the tracks that they have vowed that they will stay on. And so President Obama didn't like the decision, and he said, with all due respect, his separation of powers. You hear that? With all due respect. What he should have said is, with all due respect to the Constitution. But he said separation of powers, and what he was really doing was saying, I don't mean disrespect to those of you sitting here as justices, but I disagree with you. And then he proceeded to say why he disagreed with their decision, which is he said he disagreed with it because it would lead to bad consequences in our nation. 
And this is as close as we get as a nation to submitting to an authority. It's the Constitution. The justices made a decision based on the First Amendment of the Constitution. And President Obama said, but the consequences of your decision will be bad. Now, I don't give a rip one way or the other if he's right or wrong. I don't give a rip whether the justices are right or wrong. My point is to say that even when it comes to the Constitution of our country, all of us give in to pragmatism and utilitarianism instead of strict conformity to the words of our authority. All right? And nobody thought to think of it when he said that. None of you sat there thinking, well, what about the Constitution? You just thought it awkward because all the justices were sitting there and President Obama's looking like he doesn't see them. And then when it's over, everybody around them stands up and applauds, raining down shame on these justices. And they're saying, awkward. <laughs> it reminded me when Mother Teresa spoke against abortion with President and Mrs. Clinton sitting right next to him at the prayer breakfast. Any of you remember that? Awkward. And so if I get up and I read the text of Scripture and then I say this is what the text means and here's how we obey it, it used to be when I went in the ministry 30 years ago that people would submit to Scripture. But today our immediate orientation is to say, yeah, but how's it going to work? And here's my privilege. My privilege is to say it don't matter. It don't matter. It doesn't matter how it works. The Bible is the Word of God. And the Bible is not my Word. It's not about me. This is one time in your life it's not about me. You all think it is. You all come to me afterwards and say, how could you be so insensitive? No, this is an objective authority. And so every week when we come to this word, your question should be twofold. Number one, is Tim Bailey, that dude, in conformity to the objective authority and showing us that he's not twisting it, but he's presenting it straight? And number two, am I in submission to that objective authority? Those are the two questions. Now, let's pick a particular text to see if I'm going to teach it according to what it says and if you're in submission to it, all right? Simple question. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 12. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now you mean it? Thanks be to God. You mean it? All right. So what does this word from God say to us? And how are we to obey it? Number one, the word now. Now I exhort you. Um, another way of translating this would be, I plead with you, I beseech you. So Paul is moving from the part of this letter that is introductory and greetings and salutations. Now he's moving to the body. And instead of getting everything nice between him and them, now he's going for the work in front of him. 
And the work in front of him is to try to bring unity to the church in Corinth because it's a divided church, right? Now, I beseech you. Paul is not saying, I command you, is he? It's close to command, but he's still dealing with them in a very sensitive, tender way. I beseech you, I plead with you. You know, that's very different from saying, I command you, isn't it? I exhort you, I beseech you, I plead with you, and brethren. Now, notice it doesn't say cistern. It says brethren. And if we believe that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, then there must be profit in this word brethren. Is he addressing a group that is made up only of men? No, he is not addressing a group that is made up only of men. Why then does he call them brethren? The Greek word is Adelphoi. Why does he call them Adelphoi, brethren? Is there any utility, helpfulness to calling them brethren? If he knows women are there, doesn't Greek have a word for sisters? And couldn't he have used it? Or is it that the Apostle Paul had an ancient, archaic, and patriarchal, and misogynist will, and that will crept into that word brethren in such a way that it corrupted it, such that those of us today who are modern and smart and sensitive and and evolved can change it so that it's better than the Holy Spirit inspired it to be. And of course, that's what we all think about Scripture. We all have all these places in Scripture where if we had been writing it, we would have been smarter than the Holy Spirit. And of course, you know that I'm setting you up for something that you ought not to think or say, right? And so we all agree to sit in church and think it, but never say it. Don't you dare say it. Chesterton says, you know, I don't mind you thinking that way. It's a mode of thinking today, but my God, man, how could you say it? And that's what we always feel with Scripture. How could God say it? Well, remember, it's God who says it. And when God calls us brethren and there are cistern here, there must be something helpful. Now, what's helpful about calling you as a woman a brother? If God's Spirit calls you a brother, God is reminding you that you are in your federal head, Adam. And you say, well, what's a federal head? And I say, a representative. God reminds you by calling you brother that you were in Adam. Now, why does it matter whether or not you were in Adam? Well, it matters because in Adam you died. And if... I don't name you brother if I don't call you one of the brothers. If I don't call your race man, but always say human or, you know, homo sapien or whatever you want to call yourself. If I don't call you man, which is what scripture calls you all through scripture, it refers to men and women together as man. If I give up the usage, you will no longer have the thought. If the language changes... The thinking changes. If you as a woman no longer identify yourself as being a son of Adam, as being a brother, as being 
in Adam when he sinned, then you will end up having a superiority complex towards men. And thank goodness we don't have any of that here. I mean, I've heard that there are some times and places where women do have superiority complexes towards men. But I'm so grateful that I've never lived in such a culture. (laughs) What are you giggling about? Because you think you're superior to your husband, don't you? Come on, be truthful. You actually are in many ways. (laughs) But guess what? Her husband is actually superior to her in many ways. And Ms. Black, you're superior to me in many ways. I asked Taylor to explain to me why you were able to do certain things. He said, because you're black. And I'm superior to you in many ways. And all of a sudden, we're all going like, I can't believe he like notices. (laughs) If I were a comedian, I could say it, and I'm fine. But a preacher is never supposed to tell the truth. Hispanics are superior to Norte Americanos in many ways and vice versa. Germans are superior to French in many ways and Germans are superior to French in many ways. (laughs) And this saying is true. (laughs) And if we think about who we are as men and women, black, white, North American, South American, Central American, if we think who we are as education majors, who we are as music majors, If we think about in the music school, the huge gap, the infinite gap between performance majors and music education majors. Everywhere we go, we're faced with whether we're going to name ourselves as God names us or name ourselves as our own ego wants to name us. And there's an infinite variety of ways that we can claim superiority over other people. And so if you refuse to recognize and to name the distinction as God recognizes and names it between man and woman, you've cut yourself off from all of Scripture because all of Scripture is just one huge text that is patriarchal in nature. And patriarchal, in its best sense, means father rule. God created the universe to be father rule, not mother rule, and not each man does what is right in his own eyes, or her, or its. That's how God made us. Rosemary, or Mary Daly, just died. Um... And I can't remember whether it's Mary Daly or Rosemary Radford Ruther who says that Christianity, quote, is hopelessly patriarchal. Rabid feminist. And they tell the truth. Christianity is hopelessly patriarchal. And so they had to be post-Christian. And so when you come to a little word where it names a church where there are men and women listening and it refers to them together as brothers... 
If you are a believer, you should honor Scripture and realize it's not because they were writing in an ancient patriarchal culture and couldn't quite get the best of themselves. But it's because the Holy Spirit inspired them to name men and women together as brothers. That teaches you in Adam you died. That teaches you that Adam had Eve created for him. Adam was not created for Eve because Adam was created first, then Eve. It teaches you that because of this, God does not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man. Because Adam was created first, then Eve, and because it was Adam who was not deceived, but Eve being deceived. All right? This is a quote of Scripture. I'm just quoting Scripture. That's all I'm doing. 1 Timothy 2. That's where it is. And so you come to this little word, brethren, and you think, well, (laughs) he really can't do anything this week, can he? And I say, hey, do you smell that? Anybody smell that? I smell it. You know, we're in the process right now of building a house. And one of the things that I mourn in building a house is apparently there is a law. I don't know where the law is. I've never seen it. But apparently an inspector is going to come into my home and evaluate it by a number of laws, one of which is a law that all of the smoke detectors will be connected by wire. And I think that's like the worst idea in the world. That means that everybody, no matter where they are in the house, if I burn my toast, (laughs) they're all going to go berserk. If there's a little baby sleeping, a, a grandchild up in the bedroom, it doesn't matter if I burn the toast, you know? Do you smell anything? I'll tell you what I smell. I smell a whole world that hates God's patriarchal order. That's what I smell. Now, if you're wired to me through the word of God, you'll say, yeah, yeah, I, that's, boy, that stinks. The whole world is in rebellion against God the Father. And then you'll say, well, let's get to work. I wonder if I can find a church where they're at work. But you know, I've never once had somebody come into this church and say, I'm looking for a church where you smell what I smell. (laughs) I mean, it's a joke, right? But you go into a club to hear a comedian, and you want him to smell what you smell or her, and that means all the jokes will be about sexuality, right? And all the jokes will trade on what we all know is true. I mean, try going to an opera and having the plot of the opera be that, like, the man is not attracted to the woman. And the woman isn't trying to manipulate the man. (laughs) That one won't fly. I got a big kick out of a few years ago. It was like a, uh, uh, um, a comedy. I forget what it was. Curtis, what was it? Yeah, yeah, that one. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And the plot's pretty biblical, isn't it? I mean, really? Yeah, I mean, men are men and women are women, right? So again, when we get to the opera, everybody has to tell the truth, go into the comedian. But then when I'm here, I'm supposed to avoid the fact that it calls women brothers. I ain't going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Because that is a word in God's word. And that should be precious to you. If you're a woman, it's a wonderful gift to be called a brother. It reminds you that you're an Adam, 
But another thing it does is it reminds you that you have all the inheritance rights of a son. You see? And it goes on and on. I could spend hours and hours and hours, and one of you at least thinks I'm likely to do so, all right, (laughs) going on and on and on about all the wonderful things about Scripture's teaching on sexuality. My whole life has been a life of repentance for hating God's order of sexuality. And then, as I've repented, God pouring blessings on me personally, the most tangible, delightful blessings you can imagine. And I testify to you, give yourself to that little word, because if you do, a whole universe will open up to you. The very universe that the op-ed pages in the New York Times are trying to kill. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does it say, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what Paul's trying to do is unite them. How do you unite a group of people who are in a Christian church? The way you unite them is by pulling them together under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I look at you, and we're having a division, and I say to you, are you a Christian? Do you ever ask people that? I ask it all the time. People that come to church, after church, haven't seen them. I say, are you a Christian? All right. If you're a Christian, what happens? The minute you say, I'm a Christian, we are united under the name of our, not my, I can't stand that. It can be right sometimes, can't stand that. My God, nope, nope. Our Lord. (laughs) Now, recently, uh, we had uh, a couple in our church that have a very congruent, selfless, sweet, holy, self-sacrificial, wonderful, delightful, adoring marriage. Go to a family reunion. Right before the reunion, they agreed that sometime in the family reunion, the wife would say to the husband, Lord. And so David and Annie went to this family reunion. (laughs) And just nonchalantly, at some point, David said, Honey, could you, I forget what it was, something. Do something for me. And she said, yes, Lord. And all something broke loose. So don't think that it's with sexuality that we hate the word Lord. We hate the word Lord because, you know, he's just quoting, she's just quoting scripture where it says that Sarah called Abraham Lord. Again, I'm just quoting scripture. We don't hate... Sarah calling Abraham Lord because of sexuality. We hate Sarah calling Abraham Lord because we refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have remade Jesus Christ in our image. And he has no authority. And so when Paul says, our Lord, what he's saying is, our master, the one who bought us and owns us, And Scripture says there are only two categories of people. Those who are submitted to the lordship of Satan. Those who are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is not a third category. And so if you don't submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you are in lockstep with every single disgusting, degradated, every single decadent, every single despicable thing on this universe. You are in lockstep with it and you don't know it. Because the only way to have freedom from the lordship of Satan is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so if you 
are named by the name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And then all that matters is whether he has commanded. And we say, yes, sir. You know, have you ever tried that with your son? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's always the response of Christians to Jesus and to his word. It's just simply, yes, sir. Yes, my Lord. And so Paul's trying to bring unity to the church. And he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, I love that, we're near the Mason-Dixon line, right? You all, and what that shows is that they have not yet divided into different churches where they're going to have to have a round robin reading this in different places. They're still together, but they're divided. That you all agree with one another. That you all agree. The word agree literally, uh, literally, I don't want to say means, but literally communicates that you say the same thing, that you speak the same words, all right? So that you speak the same words. This is what he's appealing to them, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Divisions is to rip. There be no schism is, is, is the Greek word. And we get our word schismatic or schism from that word, all right? So that you all speak the same thing and that you're not ripped apart. All right? That's sort of the meaning of it. But that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. So the same words, the same statements, the same speech, all right? The same mind and the same judgment. Now... The minute I say those three things, um, all of us know that if Americans aren't to be anything else, we are to be individualists. And we don't like that. You know, we don't like to think that it's the calling of Christians in one church to be under our Lord Jesus Christ, to all be brothers together, and to have the same speech, the same words, say the same thing, have the same mind, have the same will, Sameness. Sameness isn't good in America. I've probably done hundreds of wedding ceremonies now. And there's one thing that um, if I do your wedding ceremony, you will not be allowed to take the two candles and light the center one and then keep the two ones burning also. You'll have to blow them out, right? And what do people say? Well, people say, well, no, 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 no. We should keep the other two candles burning because we don't lose our individuality. We just bring it together and something better than that comes out of it. And I say, so, like, the two shall become three, right? (laughs) No, the two become one. And it's hard work. It's very, very hard work. Because Chris is not like Shelley, and Shelley is not like Chris, except they both both talk to you at the same time, 90 miles an hour. (laughs) But aside from that, they're very different, right? One of them is a morning person, but that means 4 a.m., and they haven't gone to bed yet. (laughs) That's you, Chris. Did you know that? So have you repented of that? Right on. I'm still working on it. (laughs) 
1 a.m. Okay, that's victory. <laughs> okay. Every single marriage is made up of two forces which are completely incompatible, and that's male and female. All right? Then you bring in your family of origin, all right? Then you bring in your predilections and preferences, and then you bring in just simply your inclinations and tastes, then morning or night person, and on and on it goes. And the possibilities of division in a marriage are infinite. And many of you have grown up experiencing those possibilities in your mother and father. And the Apostle Paul says this about the church. He says, speak the same things, agree, no divisions, same mind, same judgment. And we're like, but I'm an individual. And I have to bring my individuality into the marriage and into the church. And that's absolutely true. You heard me say last week or the week before that as the Holy Spirit makes us holy, we become more our own snowflake. Every single one of them individual. And the Holy Spirit allows us to have the freedom in this conforming world to be what who God made us to be. And that is original. And it's beautiful. But that is also the same words, the same mind, the same heart. And there is no conflict between us being everything God made us to be as individuals and having the same words, the same mind, the same heart. There's no conflict between the two of them. So why do we feel like there's conflict? The reason we feel like there's conflict is that our whole goal in life is to get a leg up on the other guy. And if we're going to do that, then we're outside of the Holy Spirit. We're not under the name of Jesus Christ. He's not our Lord. But now it's all about me showing that I'm superior to you. And the possibilities for that playing out in a church are infinite. All right? Again, let's go back and revisit the issue. Think of how we signal each other that you are not as good as I am. Let's start with the word good. If you care about being good, one of the ways you can show that you're good is that you can homeschool instead of public schooling or you can Christian school instead of homeschooling. Another way is by nursing on demand as opposed to nursing according to schedule. Another way is by you bragging to the women that you didn't take a uh, whatchamajiggy, epidural. You know, she didn't squeal or nothing. And it goes on and on and on. Think of the clothing that you have on. Many of you have clothing that signals your superiority to other people. Sometimes it's with an actual name. After the morning worship service, Tim Wegner came up to me, and Tim pointed at me with this turtleneck on. It's not black, but he thinks it is. He must be colorblind. And he said, he said you have a Mac. <laughs> and here's the truth. When I put on this, this morning, I thought of Steve Jobs. And I didn't tell Tim that. He knew it. And so whether it's our computers, whether it's we're Linux, we're, we're Mac, we're PC, whether it's the Colts and number 18 or Jeff Saturday, it doesn't matter. It goes on and on and on. And many of us 
are precious with ourselves because we're single. And we live to feel alienated from all those who are married. In other words, you don't have to be the strong one in order to feel superior to other people. You can feel superior in your weakness. Read Bonhoeffer, Life Together. All right? There are an infinite variety of ways that we can be of many minds saying many different things, not having a common heart and not being under the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? One of the things that drives me bonkers is when Roman Catholics talk about the unity of their church and the division of Protestants. It's such a lie. If you look at the next verse where it says, now I mean this, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. <laughs> okay? Talk about one-upmanship. That last one's a humdinger, right? This is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does. Because what? I am of St. Francis of Assisi. I'm a Franciscan. Well, I am of the Pope. I'm a Jesuit. And I'm an intellectual. You know. I'm Dominican. They have all these orders with their heroes, the one that gave them the name, and then they claim to be united, and they look down on us. They directly, directly represent what was going on in Corinth. Now, you might look at that verse and you might say, well, who on earth would say I'm of Jesus Christ? I mean, I can see people saying I'm of Cephas and I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, but nobody would say I'm of Jesus Christ. And so what's happened, if you read the commentaries, is you'll have some men writing commentaries and they say that nobody would have said that in the church, but when a scribe was copying the text of Scripture and read those three names of Paul and Cephas and Apollos, the scribe, to show that he repented of that divisiveness, wrote in the margins, I am of Christ. And then that became a part of the text, and that's why today we have I am of Christ. And I say, no. Have you guys realize that we have in our midst, I am of Christ. It's the Christian church. <clears throat> That's what the Christian church is. Christian church, they used to be Presbyterians. And then the Campbellites said, you know, I am of Jesus Christ. And it's called the restorationist movement for a reason. They said they were restoring Jesus to his right place. And so now you can't name your church a Christian church without everybody thinking you're a part of the Christian denomination. And so today we have Presbyterians, we have Disciples of Christ, we have Methodists, we have Assemblies of God, we have Baptists. They believe in baptism. The rest of us don't. <laughs> and then in the Baptists, we've got I'm of Al Mohler and I'm of Paige Patterson. And there's nothing that's any different. It's all, it hasn't changed at all. And what Paul is saying to us is, you guys, you have to be saying the same thing. One mind, one heart, be united, be united. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say be united. Every time I read that, I think of my father. I've told you the story. We're up in the boundary waters. My brother David and I, as usual, are fighting. But I have the compass. 
And this is back before GPS, and a compass was the only way to know where your portage was, and if you had a strong headwind, and you guessed wrong where the portage was, that could be hours of work thrown away. And I was not about to give my compass to David. If he'd wanted one, he could have brought one. And it got very intense, and my father said something like, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop it! It was most intense he ever was with us. And we were fully embarrassed, and that's what Paul's doing to the Corinthians. Now, I want to make one other note before we stop, and we'll pick up again next week. Do you notice here what he does in verse 11? He says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren and sister. <laughs> For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, what on earth can we learn from that? Well, Chloe was the head of a home as a woman. And when he says Chloe's people, he's probably referring either to her children or to her slaves, her servants. And so apparently there was cross-pollination, whether they visited Ephesus and talked to Paul, we don't know. But he knew through people under Chloe's authority in that home that there was division in the church. Now, what's, what's the application to us? Well, we just blitz, you know, right on over top of that without stopping and realizing this. Have you ever seen a problem in the church and sent an anonymous email to an elder or a pastor about the problem? Or say you've gone to the pastor and said, Pastor, you know, I want this to be confidential, but I have noticed that this particular couple is having problems. Or here, here is a young man who has gotten a woman pregnant and he's going to pay for her to have an abortion. And what you do is you come to me and you tell me something that I have to act on, but it's confidential, and so I am not able to say I have heard by Chloe's people. <laughs> and here's the application of this. Look, if you care about God, if you care about Christ, if you care about the church, don't be a coward when you come to me to the elders, to the older women, and you ask them to help with something. Let them quote you. So that when they go in, people don't think that everybody's talking. They can say, no, everybody isn't talking. She talked to me. <laughs> and her name is Barbara. And that's how I know. And everybody isn't talking about you, but Barbara told me what you said. And man, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. I remember when I had um, my first church, I'd been there probably only two weeks, and a godly, wise woman of the church called me up and said, do you know in such and such a class in our Sunday school this last week that the Mormons were said to be Christians just like everybody else? And I said, no, really? And she said, yeah, that's what was said. And I said, well, who was the teacher? And she said, well, the teacher is so-and-so, and I think you needed to know about that because I think something needs to be done. So I thought it through, and even as a stupid, ignorant, green pastor, I realized that if I went into a, a, a conversation with that woman and said, did you teach this last Sunday that Mormons are Christians like everybody else, that it would be a stinking mess. 
And so I said to this woman, I said, well, may I tell her you told me that what was what was taught in that class? And she said, yes, feel free to use my name. And I've always honored that woman ever since, Kathleen Dykstra. Because what a wonderful thing that was for me to be able to say, Kathleen Dykstra told me that in the class you taught that Mormons are Christians like everybody else. This is what Paul's doing here. I've heard from Chloe's people. And do you know that for the last century, Chloe has been a name that's never used, but now it's number 10 in the United States. And it's number two in New South Wales and Australia. And it's number four in Scotland. Chloe. <laughs> and, and you don't have to pay me for that one. Let's pray. Let's pray.